continue with the class of conversations. Uh, my name is Xavier Creekmore. I pastor Beulah Grove Baptist Church in Augusta, Georgia. Coming behind a pastor of 37 years, Dr. Sam Davis, and I've been there about two years. And I'm honored to be here with these brothers, Pastor Vickers and also Pastor Paul Little. And I'm excited and I ask that you just take a moment just to introduce yourself and your church as your pastor as we start into this dialogue about change and how we implement change in these times. Eric George Vickers, Sr., pastor of Fairfield Baptist Church in Lithonia, Georgia. I've been serving our congregation just over a year now, about 10 years of pastoral experience, almost 20 years of preaching, and uh, still don't know what I'm doing. Uh, but I'm grateful to be here and certainly to be invited uh, to this tremendous conference and honored to share the platform with these preachers. Paul Little, I pastor Bibb, Mount Zion Baptist in Macon. Uh, August of this year makes nine years. Uh, been in ministry full-time for 22 years. So thank you all again for sharing. I'm grateful to be here to talk and moderate through this conversation. And as we kind of initiated, uh, last night Dr. Jerry Carter preached Nehemiah chapter 1, and as he read through that scripture, verse 6 came to mind again, where it says that Nehemiah asked for God to attend, tune his ear and his eyes to his prayer. And in his prayer, he said, he's praying for the sins that we have sinned. So he includes himself in it. And at that point, we can hear the humility as a characteristic of Nehemiah that would begin to initiate change. So when we think about that, would you share how you see humility as a value essential to leaders, pastors, in a church to initiate change? I think that it has to be, humility has to be affirmed by God and people because you can't see it. The minute you say you're humble, you're not. So I don't know. <laughs> I can try to be humble in my, in my soul and in my spirit, but God and people have to validate that. So we need a strong relationship with God, as Dominique said earlier about the intimacy piece, to ask God to deliver us from any form, any form of pride and haughtiness that exists in our spirit. And we all have the proclivity for that because we're human. But God has to do that work in us, and it has to be evidenced in the lives of the people that we lead. But they have to see that in us because we won't see it in ourselves. I agree with that. Uh, just to add to that, uh, it, it's so appropriate to have a conversation about humility in a room full of preachers uh, where there are so many egos. I mean, and that's the truth. Um, we flirt with the line between hubris and belief. Um, and it's often conflated. Humility is important because it keeps you in rooms where ability does not allow you to be there, yeah. uh, where relationships and networking cannot propel you. Humility is also a posture and not a presentation. And so it is a challenge for many of us because we give the appearance of humility and don't have the appetite for it. And so it is a daily task yeah. 
And it is a grace and a gift. And it is something that um, we need to be aware of to ask because humility uh, will allow people to give you grace when you deserve judgment. And as leaders, we forget that we are the first partakers of grace. We need it before anyone else does. Can I I add to that? Because you're, you're exactly right. I think the other end of the spectrum is that just as pride is ungodly, low self-esteem is too. Um, because sometimes we, what we call humility is really us just hiding, you know, hiding that light that God gave you. Jesus says, let your light so shine before people that they may see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven. No one takes a light and hide it under a bushel. So sometimes what we call humility is us hiding the light that God has given to us. So there's a fine spiritual balance. I don't want to be too haughty, but I don't want to be low and not owning up to who God has called me to be as well. God, he said, I am accepted. I am adopted. I am loved. You know what I mean? And so we got to make sure that we don't go to the other end of the spectrum in that as well and get, and get so low that we don't truly embrace our God-given identity too. And Nehemiah shows us humility is not something that you can do in and of your own self and power. He asks God to be humble, and I think that's an important lesson for all of us to care. Yes, sir. So so as as you said that and as you share also trying to keep that balance, how as leaders do you keep a discipline Mm. so that the balance stays intact? One of the important things that I think people and preachers struggle with is a proper view of self. When you maintain that you are not called because of who you are, but rather despite who you are, then it's easier to live out the call with humility. When you are honest about the fact that I have flaws, and I mean, the, here's the, tr- the truth is, we look good on Sunday, especially in the pandemic with all of the cameras, the different angles, thank you, Dr. Kennedy, all of the different angles, we can believe our own hype. And I think that balance comes in when you remind yourself and surround yourself with accountability partners who can say, hey, don't forget who you used to be, that God is using you despite who you are, not because of who you are. And uh, just like God fired Saul and let him keep working, um, the same can happen to you as well. And so it's all about having a proper view of who you are. And in so doing, uh, you make yourself available to be of greater use for the kingdom of God. Yeah, I agree. Y'all heard what he said. What he said. I mean, what can I add? I mean, I think accountability is great. Having people around you, friends, to say to you, okay, bro, uh, you're getting a little, you know? Um, the other part of it is, is that if you are a pastor having trouble with humility, just keep pastoring. Because pastoring will humble you. <laughs> right? That's so, true. Yeah, pastoring will humble you. I I agree. Both of you all are right there on the spot. And I think that when we consider the assignment and what's it require, 
the excitement can come when you start to see the change in others, yeah. but don't have that inform the change in you. Because I think when we start to see, we want everybody else to be on board for our change because we want to be the agents of change. So talk about what it means to be an agent of change as you see change in others so that you also remember that change has to consistently happen in you. Are you talking about change from an organizational standpoint or from a spiritual, personal perspective? Well, the spiritual, personal, that affects the organization, yeah. I think um, our brother Darrell hit it spot on when he said that this meal that I'm preparing for the people is also for me. Um, and he didn't, he didn't say this, I don't, I don't wanna add to his words, but I assume one of the things you were alluding to, Darrell, is this idea that you know, good cooks taste test, you know? And I think it's important for us to taste test. I think it's for, important for us to feed and make sure we're being nourished. And he made the comment about making sure that we don't just open the menu, scriptures, only to prepare meals for everybody else. You know, so the question remains, how is your personal, private, devotional life? Do you read the scriptures? Do you read and study the word beyond prepping? Because failure to do so is back to your original question. That's a lack of humility. Even in our language and preaching, y'all need this. The Lord is trying to tell y'all this. So we have to be inclusive even in the language we use when we're preaching. This is, we need the grace of God. We need the mercy of God. Because that also helps to inform our people that we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds just as they are as well. I 100% agree. Uh, I will add to that. In addition to maintaining the importance and continuity of your own devotional life, uh, if you are the only preacher you listen to, uh, then change within you can never happen. If you are your own favorite preacher, then you shortchange God's ability to do the work in you that needs to be done so that you can be a greater witness. Um, and so I, I don't believe in eating from everybody's kitchen. Right. Uh, I believe in examining the chef. You know, your, that kitchen needs to be clean. Uh, but you cannot say that your grandmama's chicken is the best if you've never had anybody else's. And so I think it's important to have a pastor, even as a pastor. It's important to have a therapist as a pastor. Uh, and then it is important to have a life outside of the pastorate. Yes, sir. Um, and, and I could say more, but I'll, I'll just end here. Say more. <laughs> I, I tell my congregation all the time and anybody that I meet, um, I'm a regular dude who just so happens to be called by God. Yeah. I go to the movies. I do other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm real about life and who I am, and I allow God to work within me so that people can see that change in their own lives yeah. is both possible and necessary. So ministry can't be our identity. I, 
It cannot be. Yeah, ministry can't be our identity. And I think that's dangerous ground because sometimes we do make it our identity. But it's my relationship with God and what Christ accomplished for us that gives me identity. And I think we have to separate and make the distinction between identity and activity. But, but we oftentimes merge the two. I am who I am because I'm a great preacher. Not necessarily, right? It's who I am in Christ, you know? And I know that sounds old fashioned, but it's scripture, right? It's in Christ that we find our value and our validation and our significance, not the metrics that we use to measure ministry effectiveness. Absolutely, and even if you can't go that deep, at the end of the day, if I am nothing else, if, they, if Fairfield changes the locks on me while I'm at the Classic City Conference, if nothing else, I am Gene Vickers' grandson. Yeah, yeah. I'm from Motown, <laughs> right? I have a sense of self yeah. that is detached from what I do. That's good, that's good. And so in so doing, I safeguard myself from some of my own trappings mm -hmm. um, and, and the lofty expectations of others. Because if you allow folks to put you on a pedestal, they can fire you from it too. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. So we talk about the personal aspect of change mm -hmm. and how it impacts the organizational. Let's talk about that commitment that it requires for strategic change. Mm -hmm. Because the commitment to the change means you also have to be prepared for the challenge that comes with the change. Sure. And oftentimes the challenge will start or begin to rise and cause us not to look at making better decisions so that we continue to employ the change that God has called us to lead and to orchestrate. Yep. So share personal challenges that you have faced as you have led organizational change. I pastor people. <laughs> That's the challenge. <laughs> uh, I would say something else, but I'm being uh, careful. So, <laughs> y'all can insert, y'all know where I'm going, right? Dot, dot, dot. So, change is a part of any healthy organization. Because if you don't continue to evolve, you remain, you get to a point of stagnation. Some, some organizational leadership experts will even argue that there's no such thing as plateauing. That organizations don't plateau. You're either growing or dying. You don't maintain. Because to maintain in the truest sense means you're declining at some point because it's antithetical to growth. So if we are afraid of change, organizationally speaking, as pastors, then it creates a culture in our church where change is not accepted. And we say things like that. Church people don't like change. That may be true in some cases, but I think William Bridges said it best in his book, Managing Transitions. People have a hard time with transition, not necessarily change. Because change is the outward, outward result. Transition is the process that's gonna get us there. And we, are, we have a hard time with processes in the church. We don't like tra uh, transition. We love to hold on to what's safe and familiar. But the reason that we're there as pastors is to shepherd them to greener pastures. And that requires organizational change. Some of the challenges are when we don't prayerfully and carefully articulate 
why the change is necessary, it creates chaos and confusion. Say some more about that, how you, about how you go through the process of getting to that articulation. Well, I think everything starts with prayer. Okay. Uh, Dr. Carter said it best, it, it should start with prayer, but not end in prayer, right? So we, we always start with prayer and seeking God. Why is this change necessary? Then the question remains, how does this change or initiative that we're implementing, how does it help us to further the advancement of the kingdom? Are we change, changing it just because we can, or is there an end goal in mind for us to make this change? How will we become healthier as a church as a result of this change? You, you see what I mean? And I think we have to ask those probing questions in order for us to make sure that we're not changing things you know, just because we can, but there's a healthy, uh, intentional and incremental process that we're implementing to make sure that this change benefits, benefits us in the long run. Now, Pastor, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, some of the worst advice, some of the worst pastoral advice I've ever received. I think it's important for all of us to understand that ministry is contextual. Yes. No two churches are the same. No time, no decade yes. is the same. That's right. There was a seasoned pastor, whose name I will not call, who told me that my job is to lead and feed, and the congregation's job is to follow and swallow. Now, I understand the expectation of that mm -hmm. and what is being said. But if we are not careful, if unchecked, uh, that is very dangerous and could lead to violent leadership. People don't have a problem with change as much as they have a problem with not being included in the change. You have to lead people along and not drive them. I love what Gregory Jones, uh, former dean of Duke Divinity School, says um, in his book, Navigating the Future, when he talks about change as traditioned innovation, where, where change is not so much creating something new, but reimagining something old with a more relevant present and future. If there's nothing new under the sun, then we are recycling methodologies for a repurposed or refurbished look. And I think that when we conceptualize change as traditioned innovation, as taking something old with new breath, then it becomes more palatable for our congregations, for our staffs, and even rejuvenating for us as leaders. And so I, I've tried over the last year of incorporating the idea of traditioned innovation uh, in every aspect of, of our church. So as you share that um, and you talk about employing a methodology, you say every church is contextual, how does 
the smaller church not become intimidated by the larger church because it has a method that's really driving them, but yet the smaller church has a method that's not so well in what it's doing, but they keep on doing it because it's all they know. Well, I, I think you answered the question. Um, just a little bit about me. I've been blessed uh, to pastor, I guess, every kind of church, from church planting to the small 50-member uh, deacon-run church where the expectation is we only brought you here to preach on Sunday and teach a Bible study, to the mid-sized church, uh, and to now what, what some would qualify as, as a megachurch. And what I have discovered is the difference between uh, the small deacon-run church and a church like Fairfield is the ability to innovate. When you are in an atmosphere that has a culture of allowing creativity, which includes the opportunity to make mistakes, anything can happen. There is no dream, no vision that is too large. There is no budgetary amount that is too daunting. The biggest freedom that I have found in leading change is being surrounded by people who say, oh, that's a big idea. Now, how do we get behind it to make it happen? Whereas in previous situations, it was, wow, that's a big idea. We can't afford to do that now. And so I would say that the greatest challenge for pastors in leading change whether in a large church or a small church, is fostering a culture and an environment that has a thirst for innovation and creativity. Ditto. Um, that is so powerful. In the app, in the Classic City app, um, we, we have notes. Um, I put together for the conference a framework, a leadership framework for leading change. So it's in the Classic City app, or you can text the word, I think it's text the word change to 478-221-7117. It's a whole framework that walks you through it. One of the things I highlighted is what Pastor Vickers said, is the issue is not change, the issue is culture. There are some cultures in the churches that do not foster creativity and innovation. Now here's some two realities. One, like in my case, you, you can come in and prayerfully and strategically teach about the importance of innovation, creativity. People can receive it, right? Changing the culture. Here's how I define it. Culture is the soil that determines whether or not your church can grow, okay? Culture is the, the culture of your church is the soil. If I took a, uh, a bunch of seeds right now and planted it on this stage and put water and sunlight on it, doesn't matter. It's not conducive for growth. Some churches aren't conducive for growth. And it ain't the farmer. It ain't the farmer in every case. And, and it ain't the one who supplies the, the sun. That's it. It's the soil. 
And some, now this is going to sound tough, but some cultures would never change. With God, all things are possible. True. With people, it's questionable. <laughs> and how do I know? You want me to tell you how I know? One, yes, one I'm pastoring, but one, Jesus tells me so. Because even he couldn't do any mighty miracles in Nazareth. Nazareth had a culture of unbelief where Jesus was limited. Listen to me, I'm talking about Jesus. Oh, I can go in and change these folk. Jesus could not do any mighty miracles, Mark chapter 6. He went from Mark 5, where he performed three miracles, to Mark 6, to being limited. It was the culture of Nazareth that says, we know you, Jesus, but that ain't welcome here. So you have to determine whether or not you have the long-term patience to stay in a culture that will not change, or, or will you be like Jesus and just say, okay, Nazareth, now let me go on over here to, to Capernaum, where they will receive it. Now he said, Lord, he didn't done, done told us to leave his church. Y'all got to talk to the Lord about that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying some church, if, if we're looking at Jesus' model, some cultures will not change. And that's what happened in Nazareth, and that, that's what happened. Now, if you're hearing your church's name, Nazareth, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just... You know, because I pastored Nazareth Baptist. That ain't what I'm saying. I'm talking about Nazareth in the Bible. Okay. Hall, I want to make sure they understand that. But some cultures won't change. It's deeply entrenched and rooted in something that is ungodly, that is not God ordained. Whenever, whenever a pastor cannot pastor, that's that's a that's a that's a ungodly culture that will not change. So it's Nazareth. And you have to deem it as Nazareth, and you have to determine whether or not you want to stay there and be faithful. And I would add to that, um, just because you're in Nazareth now doesn't mean God is not preparing a Capernaum for you. Right. That's right. That's right. Because what was not accepted in Nazareth Talk, man. was readily received in Capernaum. And Capernaum was a place that had multiple Roman roads. So it was a place of civilization and innovation. That caused maturation. Can I jot this down? <laughs> oh, we recorded. Say that, say, that again. Can I, say that again. Capernaum was a place of civilization, civilization. Innovation. and innovation that led to maturation. maturation. Yeah. And so just because you can no longer do any works, any more works there, yeah. except heal a few sick people, yeah. Yeah. it doesn't mean that your ministry lacks the capacity to be fruitful yes. somewhere else. That's right. and, and that's been a huge lesson for me. I had a 90-year-old preacher help me understand God's hand in my life as it related to change in my pastoral ministry. Yeah. He said this, 95 years old, I was in a place that, was, that had a culture that was resistant to the process of change. Mm. He said, sometimes God sends you to a place for you to grow the place. Mm -hmm. And sometimes God sends you to a place for the place to grow you. And if you confuse the assignment and the season, you will have Capernaum capacity but be frustrated because you're trying to do Capernaum ministry in Nazareth. 
when God has only sent you to Nazareth to prepare you for Capernaum. And so you have to understand that before God sends you to a place to change it, God will send you to a place to change you. Can I raise an offering right now? Yeah, I'll just say, we get receive the benediction. <laughs> you know, uh, conference adjourned for the day. Lunch that's on powerful, you. That's powerful, man. Lunch <laughs> on you. Boy, that's powerful. That is, pow- that is powerful. That is powerful. Yeah, yeah I, I have to, I'm trying to get my focus back off of that because <laughs> so, so we could talk about, as we talk about commitment to transformation and yeah. seeing transformation, and as Paul talked about transition as well, because yeah. transition has something I believe in it that is essential for us to pay attention to, which is grief. Yes, yes. And and I think that sometimes when it comes to the grief that happens in transitions, we may address it through misinformed concepts. Wow, wow. So we rather shout you out of it rather than sit down and talk with you through it. So as we talk about strategic change, and I throw grief into the concept of the conversation, mm-hmm. how have you taken up a concept in your pastoring yes. for the church to help them deal with their grief and transitions? Yeah. I like what Ellen Davis talks about uh, when she lifts up the work and role of biblical prophets specifically Abraham and Jeremiah, as the paradigms for true prophetic ministry. And she says that prophetic ministry is a, an unwavering, painful, enduring commitment to your own people. She likens it to a farmer who does the diligent work of caring for produce. You don't see the change and the healing and the restoration manifest in a day or a week. It is over a long period of time. Now, I'm going to be honest. That is hard for somebody like me, a millennial, um, who can get everything I want in an instant. I can do everything I want to do from my phone, bank, grocery shop, right? Everything in an instant. And despite how life has advanced in so many ways, the one thing that has not changed is the long-term care and service of God's people. It just takes time. It just takes time. And, and I think that for us, we have to develop the patience, what, what um, the Hebrew writer calls being long of nose, that, that long patience that God has with us um, to disciple people, to walk with people through the ebbs and flows of life. I think when we talk about change, even as it relates to grief and walking with people, Uh, Nothing is instantaneous. You know, our hope is that when we make a change that we see immediate fruit. And when we don't, we label it a failure. When we don't see people change immediately, we label it a failure. When we don't see the growth, we label it a failure. 
But we are called to commit to long-term, painful endurance. And that sucks. But that's the work. Yeah, that's right. That sucks. But it's, that's the part of it. Um, all change, even good changes, bring some form of grief. We don't have enough funerals in our churches. Not people, but, but activities and ministries and auxiliaries. There's some things that we need to funeralize grieve over it, and move on. We have made an unwavering commitment to things that don't, that don't work anymore. And my context, I've been there nine years. Our church is known now for innovation and creativity, out-of-the-box ministry, but that's not how it started. We've had a lot of funerals in nine years, activities and you know, different things. You said it best. It's contextual. Everybody don't, you know, we can't do the same things. But whatever organization you lead in terms of your church and whatever context, there's some form of change that could help you to better maximize your church's vision and mission, which ultimately is some version of the Great Commission if we're doing church, if we're doing ministry right. I will say that in some cases, we have to choose who we're going to lose. We're going to lose people if we fail to change, and we're gonna lose people if we do change. So we have to choose who we're gonna lose. There are gonna be some people who are not gonna be on board with us doing ministry in a more meaningful way to reach more people. I don't wanna reach more people. I wanna be able to come in and sit on the second row like I've been doing the last 50 years, right? And so we have to, we have to be willing to choose who we will lose. And that, that sucks too, <laughs> right? But it's a part of it. Then as pastors, we have to grieve in a pastoral way. There's, there's going to be some people, no matter how much you preach and teach and remain faithful, as Addison and Dominique and, and Daryl were saying earlier, no matter how faithful you are, some people are going to leave anyway, right? So we grieve in that way, but that's a part of the process. That's where therapy helps, and that's where having a good pastor, as you stated earlier, helps. I think we have to understand that there are some funerals that are absolutely necessary, and what happened during the pandemic is God helped us to see that. God said, let, let, let's do this. I'm not, I don't believe God sent it. You can, you can wrestle with that you know, from a theological perspective. I don't think God sent the pandemic. Some preachers say that he sent it to get us right. You know, he put us out to church. Okay, that's, that's cool. But we know he at least allowed it to take everything away. And in your language, as you said earlier, now let's reimagine this. Nobody had a problem when we were experimenting during the pandemic. Let's try everything. Let's, you know, we were doing drive-up. We were doing everything. Let's try it all. People were trying everything. But it's that same experimentation and innovation that you mentioned that's not just good for crisis. It's also good for sustainable ministry. Absolutely. We have to stay on the cutting edge, not just to survive, but stay on the cutting edge in order for us to remain forward-thinking and progressive. Yeah. Pastor, as you were talking, uh, it made me realize that one of the great challenges that I've had as a pastor in terms of change is wanting everybody to be in support of the change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when that has not happened, yeah. I struggle. Yes, sir. It reminded me of when the exiles returned and the temple was rebuilt. Mm -hmm. And when they had the great ded dedication service, yes, sir. 
there was a great sound that traveled very far. And the neighbors could not tell what the sound was. The young people were excited because of what had been accomplished in the rebuilding of the temple. But the older saints were weeping and sorrowful because when they remembered the first temple, it paled in comparison. And so sometimes we have to learn that in leading the effort of change, that we will have to be balanced and learn how to navigate the simultaneous joy and sorrow yeah, yeah. that comes with the newness of change. Yeah, the la lamentation and celebration. That's it. A part that's of it. it. Yeah, that's rich, man. That's I rich. appreciate that because you are saying and you're giving validation to the need for lament. Yeah. Because I think oftentimes we don't want to lament. We just want to rejoice. Yeah. Because rejoicing is easy. Lamenting is difficult. Yeah. Rejoicing makes us feel satisfied where lamenting says, are we pleasing God? Mm -hmm. So we have to sit with a different <laughs> perspective that yeah. we don't always want to initiate. Yeah. That's you know, and when you think about that through the concepts that you share, I, I want to invite this because as you were talking and as we're sharing, I, I felt the community here. But I think it's a community that needs to be felt through all of the leaders in the churches. Yeah. Now, I hope you all can help with this, is that we talk about concept, large church, small church, relationships between pastors who are trying to initiate, seeking God to initiate strategic change where they are. Yeah. What relationships do you have with the churches in your community to help, help them achieve as you continue to achieve? <laughs> so our, our church is very relational. Uh, we consider ourselves a sister church, uh, but we're in an area, um, unfortunately, where... Uh, there's a lot of competition, um, if you will. Uh, our church is located in DeKalb County. And every large church in the Atlanta metropolis that you can think of is in DeKalb County. One of the things that's beautiful about our particular context is we have never viewed ourselves in competition. Uh, we're in competition against Satan. <laughs> that, yeah. That's our competition. Yeah. Uh, and so one of the things that I do is I take it upon myself um, to, be, to be friendly. Yeah. I don't think there's anybody here that has asked for my contact information who didn't receive it. Yeah. Uh, because I'm all about learning and growth. And here's the other thing. Everything that's large ain't healthy. Right. <laughs> Right, right. I ain't talking about nobody. I'm just, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Talk about um, it. And so, again, I think when you have a healthy view of self and understand that if you have been blessed, whether it's resources or, or money or people or whatever it is, it is a God-entrusted tool to be used to build the kingdom that's right. and not to inflate yourself. And so uh, that, that's kind of our perspective. But we, we have relationships. Uh, I think, again, for us, the pandemic 
uh, has kind of, and not using it as an excuse, but it has kind of uh, isolated us in a bit because everyone is still trying to find their balance. Yeah. I think every church is yeah. trying to figure out who their members are right. at this point. And so just trying to find that balance internally, but we view ourselves as a, as a sister. Yeah, that's, that's rich. Um, so making sure we understand who the real enemy is, who the real competition is, as you said, uh, is Satan and his demonic uh, army. Um, so, so Satan is the enemy. If we're saying this as Dr. Hall has taught us, if we're talking to Gen Z, we would say that the devil is my op. But anyway, um, so, <laughs> so that's, that's, don't worry about that. So, so I have great relationships. Uh, Pastor Darrell McIntosh, Pastor Dominique Johnson, I'm talking about local pastors in the middle of Georgia area. Pastor Lonnie Slater, who was just here a minute ago. We partner, we've done a lot together. Um, Tolan Morgan is a close friend of mine at Fellowship Bible. We've done two major outreach initiatives together and we're and about to do another one for a local school in Warner Robins where the children, um, a Title I school where the children don't have coats for the winter. So uh, Tolan and I are, are partnering together. We did the Jackson, Mississippi water piece together. So we partner together a lot. Uh, Daryl has been a great, uh, Daryl McIntosh has been a great supporter and resource to us. He's come to our church. We preach for each other. So we, there's no competition in that, in that, in that way. Uh, our adopted school initiative, uh, Pastor Tyrese Ivey invited our church, he's in the rear. He has partnered with us, he does a back to school drive each year for the teachers to do supplies for the teachers. We partnered together on that, but he led the effort, right? I came alongside, he led the effort. We were able to contribute. We do that stuff a lot. On the other end of the spectrum, there are some, some churches where when you try to do that, it's not welcome and you can't get messy about it, that just is just what it, you know, it is what it is. I think we need to focus on cultivating those healthy relationships because we can do more together than we do separately. I think about uh, Pastor Patrick Tony here from Dublin. We've done things together, you know what I mean? Pastor Julius Trawick in the back from Milledgeville, we've done things together. So that whole middle Georgia, that, that extension there, um, I think we have a very healthy, um, a healthy collaboration amongst pastors. Um, not not 100%, but nothing is ever going to be 100%. But I think you got to, you know, as they say in the business world, go with the goers, you know. You got to work with those who want to work with you. And, uh, and you try to encourage others, but I think we need to keep our eyes focused on what the mission is, and that is the advancement of the kingdom first, not the, the prosperity of my individual church. Paul lit for president. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do that, John. I ain't want to pass hey. the country. No, <laughs> That's different. <laughs> <laughs> so again, we, we thank our convener, uh, Jay Ricardo Smith, for this opportunity to, to share in this conversation. And thank you, brothers, for sharing yeah, through you. strategic change and what it looks like and how we can begin to employ it amongst us as a community and how we work within ourselves. So thank you. Would you all give God praise for these brothers here? Hey, we got to All right, all right. Y'all blessed this morning. Were y'all blessed this morning? All right.